Tuning in to the online broadcast network, AfterBuzz TV. Over 20 million weekly downloads in over 150 countries and your number one source for after-show entertainment. AfterBuzz TV, the destination for TV superfans. Producing aftershows for over 300 of your favorite TV shows. Interviewing celebrities and showrunners. And bringing you behind-the-scenes exclusives. All thanks to E! Entertainment's Maria Menounos, producer Kevin Undergaro, and internet leader Akamai. Now, let the buzz begin! What a somber opening. <laughs> That's so good. Hello, After Buzzers and the internet at large. Welcome to the first after show for season two of FX's Fargo. Now, just right up top, you can follow the network on all social media platforms, iTunes, YouTube, everywhere else where you do your internets at AfterBuzz TV. I am Lex Michael. I'm on all of the interthings. My handle is at the Lex Michael, and with me is Dave Child. I'm also on internet things at at MR Dave Child. So you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, all the jams. All, all the, the jams. jams. All the jams. I kick the jams. That's good. That's encouraging. Mm-hmm. So we are playing catch up a little bit because we're now right. a few weeks into season two of Fargo. So we figured the best way for us to catch up, to make the best use of our time, is to cover two episodes at once. So for right. this show, we are covering episode one, Waiting for Dutch, and episode two, Before the Law. But before we get too far into the specific content of the episodes, I wanted to ask you, Dave, what is your relationship with Fargo as a property? I'm, uh, like everybody, right. you know, you come to the movie first, and, and that's where the series is, is yeah. based. What, what was your relationship with the movie? How did you discover it, if you remember? And what was your, what was your reaction when you read that they were turning it into a, an episodic series, A, and B, when you finally saw it? How did right. you feel about it? Well, for one, I'm surprised that Fargo is a property now. Isn't it is a property. Weird. It feels like such a quiet movie that's like a cult favorite at the time. And I, I loved it. I watched it, I think, when I was in high school and fell in love with it right away. It wasn't actually even my like favorite Coen Brothers movie at the time. But I sure. feel like it's you, you get the best of both worlds with the Coen brothers, you get like the death, you get the murder, you get, but yep. you get this weird dark humor that they always have. And I just, I just fell in love with it there. And then when I found out they were making a show out of it, I did not want to watch it. I right. did not, I wanted to stay as far away from it as possible. I was like this, they have to come up with original TV. I don't know why they're just taking a fantastic movie and they're going to destroy it. I thought it was going to be, about the characters from Fargo. I thought it was going to be just this totally just ruining the movie in general. And then I saw it and realized it's one of the best TV shows on TV and that they did an amazing job of adapting the feeling and the themes and the mood of a movie without actually touching upon the plot of the movie, except like a brief thread. In it, there is one particular plot point, for, and it has to do with a large amount of cash that ties right. it directly into the movie and does, in a way, if you look at the timeline, I suppose make it a sequel to the movie in some sense. It does. It does make it a, like, but it also, it comes out like something that happens in a Coen Brothers movie or something that happens in that type of movie where it seems like it's manna from heaven and that made it perfect. Yes. There was no 
There's no character threads. I thought we were going to get a uh, we we it did follow like a female lead, but yes. she wasn't even like the sheriff at the beginning of the of the series. So it was it right. was like it was different. It was uh, she was a deputy at that time, yes. and then and I felt like. And she was able to escalate and become a whole different character than one of the, like the best female characters on of movies. Absolutely, so that was great. Yeah, how how did you discover it? So I like you. I think it was I must have been high school when I was really digging into movies for the first time. When I was I was blossoming as a little film Ooh, nerd, blossoming. And it was it's one of those. I, maybe you can relate to this. It's a lot mm-hmm. like that feeling. Um, I was thinking about this earlier. Like when you see Pulp Fiction for the first time. Yeah, and you realize even if you're even if you're 14 when you see it, and you don't yet have the vocabulary to explain to somebody why this is opening your mind up yeah. so much, you just know it is. You know without being able to quite explain it to anybody else that you're watching something truly, truly special. And if you are like I was, a blossoming Ooh, film, blossoming, <laughs> blossoming mm. film nerd, so it, a little disgusting, but I like it. Blossoming. Little, it's, mm. it's just the proper amount of yeah, off yeah. color. Um, but it it is a. Uh, Something transformative about yeah. certain movies at certain times in your life. And even though I can't tell you, I can't tell you, I saw Fargo for the first time in 19, blah, 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 yeah. whatever. I remember the experience of watching it and going, okay, there's everything in my brain as far as its relationship to movies pre-Fargo. And right. then there's everything post-Fargo. And it was, I mean, look, I could say that about half the Coen Brothers movies that yeah, I've seen. Well, the great thing about the movie and also the show is it breaks... It it breaks um, boundaries as far as genre. Like yes. you can't quite say what genre this show is. Right. Never mind. Also the movie. You can't tell if it's it is a thriller. It is a noir, but it's also a comedy. It's a dark comedy. It's a drama. It actually has some horror elements to yes. it. And it's just it's all over the map. And that's why I think it, it identifies and like this is something different. So I'm gonna. This is mine now. I'm gonna take it. Absolutely, this is mine because it sees the world like I see it, which not it is not in black and white, not in like comedy yes. versus drama. So. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, I I agree with you that I think season one of this show did a fantastic job of replicating the elements that to me made Fargo as a movie feel very unique and very fresh and very eye opening without rehashing the same points over and over. It felt yeah. very fresh and it felt very. Alive and new and rich and full. And the writing was spectacular. The cast was absolutely top-notch. Yeah. And uh, it does, obviously, even though the series is designed as an anthology series, yeah. each season is its own contained story. Which is great. It it keeps you from being stuck in a trap of having to yeah. devise arcs for people over many, many years, regardless of whether or not the material is there to yeah. sustain the story. Yeah, I mean the the uh, the film uh, the showrunner Noah Hawley has talked about how the point of Fargo and why Fargo was such a good movie and what he wanted to capture in the show is that you feel like after the events that happen in the show, the next day is going to be just another day. Yeah, it's just going to be another day, and everything's going to go back to normal. And you can't really do that if it's the same people, if it's the same cast, right? Always having these Coen Brothers type crazy plot lines you feel like okay fargo is just 
that's a crazy place. Why does anyone live there? Yeah, that's yeah. no. I mean, you still feel that with the show. But slightly, like, slightly. But you're like, it, you feel like they want to go back to a normal that does exist. Yes. So. And that's that's exactly how the movie ended as well. Right. You see, Frances McDormand's character goes through this harrowing ordeal, but at the end of the movie, she's in bed with her husband, and you get the feeling that the next day, she'll go to work, just like yeah. any other day. It's just every other day. Yeah. yeah. And so, season one, I think, I think we both agree, was... An exceptional piece of yeah. television, and and season two because there's a lot of anthology series now, or like I guess three. There's uh, American Horror Story and there's True Detective. Yes, and after the second season of True Detective, it made everyone go, "Ooh, maybe anthology series." Aren't good. Maybe uh, for those listening that are going, hmm. Uh, season two of True Detective was, let's say, divisive at best. I haven't seen it, but I heard it's a train wreck, and yeah. that's why I haven't seen it. Well, I try to keep it positive, so we're going to go with divisive at best. A positive train wreck, <laughs> but it's not the show we're talking about today. Right. So it's, and, but it made a lot of a lot of critics didn't like it. Let's put it that way. Sure. So it made people wonder if the next Fargo series will have the same problem because it's kind of like the sophomore disease where you come out with one great album so maybe the next album isn't so great sure so they were worried about that but this so far this series is amazing yes it's i've only now we're we're like i said we're playing catch up uh for our after show i've only seen up till now the two episodes that we're going to cover same here same here they're both Fantastic. Great. And with the only other note that I want to make before we dive into the episodes themselves mm-hmm. are connective tissue to the first season of this show. Because the first season, correct me if I'm wrong, was more or less set present day. Yeah, it was set in 2006. So, a couple years ago, but yeah. more or less present day. This season is set in 1979. And mm-hmm. one of the central characters, Lou Salverson, played by Patrick Wilson, is present in season one. Uh, that yeah. character is played by Keith Carradine. And he's the father of Molly Salverson, who's our protagonist in that right. season. He owns the diner. Yeah. And, and always is interacting that way. And he alludes to having seen some things in right. his day. And you, you get the feeling and it's, you know, it helps to have an actor like Keith Carradine to, to convey these things, but he's, yeah. he's been through it as, yeah. as an officer of the law. And so you have that going on in the back of your head. Every time you see Keith Carradine in season one, what is what is this? What are those things? Yeah, what what what, th- what things did he see? And now we get to see those things. <laughs> we do. So, 1979, and you right before we we jumped on Mike, you reminded me of the way the first episode of the season opens, and I right. agree, we have to touch on it. So I wanted to let you. Yeah, first we first we hear the classic Fargo theme that we started off the show with. That kind of low. I don't know the name of that piece, but the like. But we hear it. As scratchy, and we see we the uh, it's not in widescreen; it's just in standard, and it's and we see it's like a, a old West movie, and yes. yeah, and we come in on a, a Native American or a guy playing a Native American in front of a field of dead people, wondering what his line is, and they're all waiting for Reagan to get on screen, and then and it takes place in Fargo because apparently that's where. The actual massacre of Sioux Falls happened around there? Sioux Falls is uh, South Dakota, I believe. South Dakota. Yes. Okay. Or there's some sort of like, there's some sort of wars or massacre that happened around where this movie is, or the show is taking place, this 10 hour movie is taking place. And then it just kind of, then it cuts right to 1979. And it's strange. And I'm really wondering how it ties back. And it makes me feel like Reagan is actually going to be a big part of the show. 
But I don't know when or how it's going to get to him. We're going to come back to that in okay. predictions at the end of the show because I do want okay. to comment on that a little bit because I agree with you. It definitely seems to be they're, – they're dropping enough Ronald Reagan-centric hints already in the first two episodes that yeah. this has to pay off somehow or why is it there? Yeah. So – I figure, since we're covering two episodes, uh, the easiest way, and we talked about this before we came on, Mike, maybe the easiest way to uh, get through everything that we have to get through is by focusing on groups of characters right. and their journey over these first two episodes. So I wanted to start with, uh, of these groupings, the largest assemblage of characters, mm-hmm. the Gerhardt family. Yes. And the Gerhardt family, as presented to us in the first episode, is the most prominent organized crime syndicate that operates out of the titular town of Fargo. Yeah. Uh, their hold on their territory is threatened by two events that happen pretty in pretty quick succession. Yeah. The first is that the patriarch of the family, Otto Gerhardt, suffers a debilitating stroke. Right. But and, before that, actually, they're they're having money trouble. Yes. They 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 talk about how the business isn't bringing enough money in. And one of the youngest, uh, Rye, Rye, is not especially not pulling his weight, which is important in the Fargo universe. It's weird that there's Far- a Fargo Fargo-verse. universe. Yeah. Fargoverse. Fargo-verse. In the Fargoverse. Yeah. Uh, because there's always a sense of, um, there's always someone who is not making money. It's usually a male character yes. who's not like living up to that kind of male stereotype of trying to, needing to bring in the bread. Right. And is resorting to very desperate needs. So, uh, one of the things that Rye does is he starts, he tries to join a business about an electric typewriter. That's right, yes. Yeah, it's an electric typewriter, but the only thing that's holding back on it is a judge who's holding the money of the guy who invented the typewriter and is trying to sell the typewriter. Right. So his mission was to talk to the judge. But he's not a very bright guy. This guy's played by uh, Culkin. Kieran Culkin. Kieran Culkin. And to me, I actually thought when I first met him, like, is he playing young Steve Buscemi? Is this how it's going to tie into the movie? Is he like a very young Steve Buscemi and this is this is his kind of story sure. as he gets older? And then it's not. It's not. At all. It's definitely not. Because we find, should we get into the Waffle House? So let's, let's, two, yes, yeah, so two things happen basically simultaneously. Okay. One is the stroke of the family patriarch, who, by the way, played right. by Michael Hogan. If yes. anyone listening is a fan of Battlestar Galactica, you will recognize him immediately as Saul Ty. Mm-hmm. I'm always happy to see that dude. Um, so it was good to see Saul. Well, it's good, good to see just every time, no matter what he's doing, I hear him yelling about Cylons and stuff. Yeah, no matter how many eyes he has, no, it's great to see him. He just, he thinks everyone's a robot and he's real mad about it. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, we uh we see this happen and then yeah we see we see what rye takes it upon himself to do or rather attempt yeah. to do and he goes to this waffle house and he initially seems like he's going to try and talk to, to the judge to the judge uh who does not want to listen uh, sprays him in the face with with bug spray, and there's a massacre that happens. Essentially, there's, yeah. To cut to, I mean, we've all. You, if you're listening to this, if you're watching this, you've seen the show, and so you'll know that he'll he brought out a gun and basically just started shooting everybody at the Waffle House, yes. and getting stabbed himself. So he wanders out into trying to make it look like a robbery. He had the foresight to make it look like a robbery because he grabs all the money in the cash register, yes, and then leaves the Waffle House. But as he leaves the Waffle House, he sees a UFO. Yes, and a flying spacecraft. Yeah, a flying spacecraft, and then gets hit by a car that does not stop, 
and then just keeps driving. It's and you do we do find out uh, a little bit later in the episode who's driving the car, but on the first uh, appearance of this vehicle of Rye getting hit by this vehicle, it's almost the car stops just long enough that you know the driver's reacting and thinking right. about what to do. And the car just takes off and drives away. Right. So these two things taken in conjunction with one another put the Gerhards in a very tenuous position, yeah. which is uh, very bad timing because, especially now in light of the Patriarch's stroke, the members of a Kansas City-based syndicate are now planning to move in and take over that yeah. territory. a little hostile takeover. Yeah, and one of them is, uh, is Brad Garrett. Yeah. One of them is Brad, yeah, one of them is Brad Garrett. Uh, his, his character's name is Joe Bulo, and he arrives— That's the, the older brother from, from uh, Everybody Loves Raymond, right? Yes. Who you're talking about? Yes, okay. yes, 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 yes. That's how I know people. Yeah, and he, he arrives on the scene with a character named Mike Milligan and mm-hmm. the Kitchen Brothers. The Kitchen Brothers. Who are two mute—they uh, look like Hasidic Jews, yeah. and there's two of them. Which, by the way, is kind of weird because as NPR— Characters that do their own podcast called the Kitchen Sisters. So it's weird to see the opposite of them is like these very sweet sisters that run a NPR show. The very opposite of them are mute killers, or we assume are killers, or see, mafia that, people. Then I genuinely hope that's an intentional nod to yeah, NPR. Yeah, I bet it is. I genuinely hope it is. It is Fargo the show. I bet it's an NPR nod of some sort. Anyways. So so knowing now that these these hoods from Kansas City are are making a bid to take over their share of business in Fargo, the matriarch of the family, Floyd, yeah. uh, is, is trying to tell her sons, and nobody can find Rye, of course, because unbeknownst to them, Rye is uh, off dead somewhere. Yeah. Uh, but she's trying to, especially her oldest son, Dodd, trying to say, you know, let me let me get us through this difficult time. I know you're the eldest male. Yes, your father's out of commission. It is your throne to have. Your legacy will be there. She knows that Dodd's not the guy to get them through this this patch. Right. So she beseeches him, please let me get us through this. And once we get to the other side of it, I will step aside I will, uh, I believe she, she, I'm paraphrasing, but she essentially says, you know, I'll start planning for the grave, essentially. Yeah, I'll, I'll turn my, I'll turn my uh, ideas to the grave. Yes, that's exactly what, what she, she says. says. Yeah, yeah, but, uh, so what ends up happening there is, uh, the, the older brother is, is Dodd, right? Dodd is the eldest. Yeah, Dodd is the eldest. He, he still wants power. So what everyone needs is they need the last brother on their side. They need Rye to be on their side. So then there's a search by the Kansas City Mafia to look for at least one of the of the family members that will turn to them and it seems like maybe one of the only family members that will turn to them is Rye. Right. So they're looking for Rye, the Kansas City people are looking for Rye and the older brothers looking for Rye and the mom is looking for Rye. Right. So everyone's looking for Rye at this point. Um so so where is Rye? <laughs> is where we go next as we meet the Blomquists. The Blomquists. The Blomquists uh, by uh, who are Kirsten Dunst and Jesse Plemons. Yes, the characters' names are Peggy and Ed Blomquist, yeah. and we do come to find at the end or towards the end of the first episode that it was Peggy who was driving the car who hit right. Rye. And by the way, the uh, the showrunner Noah has said that his idea for season two started with the single image. Of a housewife with a dead person in her windshield. Yeah. That's like, he was like, I like this image. Let's see what story I can make out of that. 
And that's where it started. So it makes sense it's in the pilot. And you, you see, as she drives home with this right. dead person in her windshield, you see her arrive at home, not still clearly processing it and not having the wherewithal to really be able to process what just yeah. happened. She gets out of the car. She goes inside. She sits down. She cleans herself up. She's not going to tell her husband about it at first. Doesn't say a single thing. No, when Ed comes home, he he has to figure out for himself that something's not quite right here. Right. And, and these characters are very important in the Fargo-verse because they kind of... There's always a sense of, like, people that want to... Fargo is essentially... This is what the showrunner said, so I can't take credit for this. Evil, Not evil versus good, but evil versus decency. Yes. So it's just a sense of, like, trying to... Everyone in the Midwest is just trying to be decent. They're trying to be decent people, very polite, very nice, and try not to make a ruckus. So these characters are you have the uh the male character who is out to what's his name the Ed you have yes. Ed's character who just wants to own a butcher shop he just, just wants he just to, wants to take over the family business yeah he wants to have kids like it's the 60s again yes. and he just wants to like you know live a happy quiet life and then you have Peggy who is going through the this takes place in 1979 which is very important so it's just after a sense of like um a giant feminist movement and a feeling that okay I have to I have to find my own I have to be a part of my own so she is struggling to find her place in the world and she's trying to figure out how to go in that direction and uh when so when this happens I think she just tries to like block it out and just tries to make it so, like, I gotta be decent. I can't say anything. None of anything that happens here will, would happen if she just went straight to the police and just said, I got into an accident. They'll be like, oh, you hit this murderer. It's totally fine. You did us a favor. Thank you. Yeah, but because she doesn't want to make a ruckus, it's, she drives home. Everything that she does in these first two episodes, and, and you know, now that uh, presumably people listening have seen these first two episodes, she convinces Ed to help her cover the entire thing up for the sake of keeping up appearances yeah. and not making a fuss. Yeah, and it brings Ed into now Ed is not like he's not someone who has to deal with his uh with his wife who accidentally killed someone. He is someone who is a murderer himself. Oh, because we should add that Rye wasn't quite dead uh when he, he was came home. Most of the way dead. He was most of the way dead, uh. but he wasn't quite dead. So you heard some he heard some thudding, he went in Rye attacked him. He killed him in self-defense. It, to, to be fair, if he if he went to the police there, there's a strong likelihood he would be able to go away scot free. It's still the murderer they were looking for. Yeah. It's so still, I mean, he's still a murderer. They still killed a murderer. Right. But he had to cover it up. So you see him cleaning up the garage, and you see him have to dispose of the body. Yes. Which happens in the second episode, but we're covering both here. Yeah. So he brings the body to his butcher shop and starts uh, carving up that body. Which is very reminiscent. We mentioned when we were talking before the show, very reminiscent of uh, spoilers for Fargo, the movie, which is the better part of 20 years old now. If you haven't right. seen it, shame on you. Well, uh, also, why are you watching this show if you, if you haven't seen really, that movie? The movie's so much shorter. You could yeah. go, you could watch it two hours and go, this show probably isn't for me if you don't like the movie. Yeah. Anyway, Steve Buscemi's character meets a grisly end and is put into a wood chipper by yeah. Peter Stormare. And to me, I mean, of course, they're making a Fargo series. Naturally, they know every frame of the yeah. source material. I can't imagine that that was not an intentional nod to that moment. Now, was it his foot when when he went into the grinder? It, it must have been his foot. Steve, it's Steve Buscemi's foot. 
yeah, when you in, in the movie in the wood chipper. there was definitely I think there might have been a hand there was some appendage that you yeah. can see Ed have to put into which this. by the way I think is a much cleaner way of getting rid of a body than a wood chipper oh yeah I think that wood chipper uh, was a bad move because you show up and it's still bl- there's still blood on the snow oh, all over the snow all over the snow but uh, so. Okay, so now let's go back to the Waffle House after what happened at the Waffle House. Yes. Because we have to look at the people investigating. Yes, we absolutely, we, we, I made a whole, uh, ordeal of touching on the Lou Salverson character. So we have to come back to Lou Salverson, who is, I would say, uh, the closest thing to a moral center we have in this show. Yeah. Him and, and Hank, the Ted Danson character, the sheriff. Yeah. Well, the, the cops in Fargoverse, Tend to be either the moral centers or complete inept, and, uh, and completely inept. And in this this time, we meet two cops, and they both seem to be pretty centered. Yes. So, yeah, the Ted Danson character and and Lou, which makes me worry. By the way, it's a side note for the Ted Danson. Oh, character. that was the fir- first episode when I saw Ted Danson. I'm like, this guy's really great. He's gonna die, isn't he? Yeah, he's so going to die. He's not dead yet in the first two episodes. But I'm really worried for his well-being because he's just too much of a nice guy, and I feel like he's so there. Okay, so and we'll, we there's a moment there's a moment in the second episode to to your point uh, that we can touch on in a minute. But first, right. I do want to talk about about Lou and his his family a little bit yeah. because, like like we mentioned, he is the Keith Carradine character in season one, the the father of Molly, the protagonist, and you see. Lou, the Patrick Wilson version of Lou in 79, at home with his daughter. You see young yeah. Molly, and you see Lou's wife, who is who has cancer, who has recently started undergoing chemotherapy. And, mm-hmm. you know, unfortunately, you know, if you've seen season one, Molly's mother is not around. Not, uh, not around, whatever that means. So. Sure, and, and look, in the, in the Fargo-verse, as we have yeah. taken to calling it, it could be any number of things. Now they've introduced the possibility of aliens, so maybe she's in space somewhere. Oh my god. But we, we meet her and we, we see this, this tender, loving relationship between Lou and his wife, and how he takes care of her, and how there is this fantastic give and take Yeah, there's a the sense of, of respect, too, that's really nice. And I think that's you could see that instilled into Molly, I think, especially as they grow older. The in in all the Fargo shows, it's really nice to see these well developed female characters. Absolutely. Because that, that doesn't tend to happen in just T V and movies in general. Agreed. So it always makes it like, wow, they actually know how to write a woman and they yeah. actually know how to like have that person be also like a mom, but still like still uh, still three-dimensional and not just like this Mother Mary character or something. Well, there's a moment in the second episode where they go back to... Lou goes back to the Waffle House, the scene of the crime. Because he's got a hunch that he hasn't seen everything at the Waffle House. And his wife and daughter are with him. And Mm -hmm. uh, while he goes inside and he's poking around, uh, the wife, Betsy, is the character's name. Uh, Betsy and young Molly are outside. And Betsy finds Rye's gun. Right. She's actually, and it's funny, uh, Lou makes the comment, oh, mommy's doing daddy's job again. Yeah. And this excites Molly to no end. And it's great having yeah. seen season one. And you see this this amazing, not just amazing woman, but amazing police officer that Molly Salverson eventually grows into. And you go, well, A, okay, you've got, you've got your dad, and your dad is who he is, but you look at the way they're portraying her mother. And you see, like, well, no wonder Molly is who Molly is in season one. Being that that is that is her mom. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a uh, it's great to see, 
And then you, okay, so what happens with, uh, that? I think we're touching upon everything that happens in the two episodes. Cause the important thing to remember about the show is it's mostly about, it's mostly about ambiance and like, at, like, uh, what the show and, and the character development. Yes. Rather than it is about actual things happening. Well, and there are so many wonderful little moments. And now that we've touched on the groups of characters and most of the big plot elements of the first couple episodes, I did want to touch on some of the smaller moments that I really, really love. Right. Well, we have to, we do have to mention the, when Lou ends up at the butcher shop. Yes. In this, the, this is important. In the second episode, right when Ed is, you know, doing his grinding. Grinding away before Grinder. <laughs> this was, this was, he was grinding away and Lou shows up because he sees that the light's on and he just wants to pick up some bacon. Yeah, pick up some bacon. For his family. And in the, what's great is in the Fargo verse, we know we've had so much experience of people just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yep. And just happening to like, find something that's just seeing something. So he goes in. To pick up bacon, and it becomes a game of trying to hide evidence that there's a human body being grinded in the back, including fingers that end up going under the door and and hiding them. So that's a great tense moment. I just wanted to touch well, upon and it before. It's, it's, I'm glad that you did because it's, it's interesting, too. You see, much like in season one, there's a character in this case, it's Ed, who suddenly finds himself he's never he's never killed somebody before let right. alone had, had to dispose of a body and lie to a police officer about it he's immediately instantly in way 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 over his head and it's interesting to see you saw the same thing happen with Martin Freeman's character in season 1 yeah. but the big difference is i think in the moral core of those two people whereas Martin Freeman in season 1 pretty quickly gave in to some of his darker impulses right well he wanted to be a man We're, he wanted to be like the most manly man he could possibly be because he was cowed by his by his wife and so, it's it's yeah. it's the marriage dynamic i think i think yeah. you hit the nail exactly on the head Martin yeah. Freeman was so uh belittled and verbally emotionally abused by his wife that it became exactly the way you just put it it became i i need to prove that i'm a man and yeah. i need to do all of this and it took him to a very dark place jesse plemons character ed he and his wife have for all intents and purposes what seems like a a very strong good loving relationship yeah um and, and he just his his sense of being a man is also like own a butcher shop yeah. have lots of kids and that's that's really what he wants. It's it's the difference between I'm going to be a man and I'm going to be a family man. Right. You know? Right. I also want to touch upon um before we run out of time. I want to talk touch upon like Fargo has all these little nods towards all these other Cone brother properties and like nods and there and is one thought I I want yes, yeah. I want you to expound upon that a little bit because in talking about some of the smaller moments there's one specifically that stuck out to me that that drew my mind immediately to another Coen Brothers property but I wanted to right. get your thoughts well, first. just because we were talking about the butcher shop right yes. across from the butcher shop is a pharmacy then it's in my notes somewhere but I forget the name of it but it's the same pharmacy it's the name of the same pharmacy that in No Country for Old Men there's a giant like explode like car bomb in front of. So there's even I didn't even catch that. Yeah, there's even this weird link there. And on top of it, you also get um the first episode. I think it's the first episode ends with 
um, Go to Sleep Now, Little Baby, that uh, You and Me and the Devil Makes Three, this like wonderful Americana song that's from Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? That's right. That the sirens sing to uh, to lure them into like the the lake there, into the uh, river. So it's this nice little like, oh whoa, that's from another Coen Brothers thing, and then. There's Reagan. There's the poster yes. of Reagan. There's a poster of Reagan behind, actually, Nick Offerman's character, who... Yeah, uh, we haven't even mentioned that Nick Offerman is also on this show, playing a character, by the way, named Carl Weathers, which is quite possibly the greatest decision on the part of the writers amazing. and casting directors that I've ever heard. I didn't even notice that. Yeah. Yeah, he is... I think he's actually introducing a theme that we're going to see throughout the show, which is a sense of conspiracy. Sure. And um, the idea that... Because everyone's talking about Watergate. It's 1979. Everyone's talking about Watergate. So they've just been introduced to the idea that the government is doing things they might not be comfortable with. A war that they hate just happened. A lot of them are bringing that violence home as a sense of that. And uh, they're, so the whole – all the – everything that's happening with the government is is different to them. And we see a poster of Reagan behind him as he's talking about all these conspiracies. And, and if the, you look, if you look very closely, look closely at the poster, you realize the poster is actually Bruce Campbell as Reagan, which is amazing for one reason. It means I hope, I hope in a future episode we see Bruce Campbell as Reagan. I hope we see that. I hope because they've introduced Reagan in the beginning of the show. Yep, they they're putting the seed that Reagan is played by Bruce Campbell. But he's uncredited in this, which is amazing because in the uh, in the Fargo movie, you actually see Bruce Campbell in the cabin that Peter Stormare is watching. That's right. Because he's watching a uh, soap opera that Bruce Campbell was in. Because Sam Raimi, Bruce Campbell, Coen Brothers, they were all friends. They all helped out each other. Right. So what I'm wondering is actually if the UFO... To go back to the conspiracy... Wait, do you want to hold on to this for predictions? Okay, okay, okay. Because... Okay, I'm okay, go ahead. I'm, about where you're going I'm with really, this. I'm really looking forward to predictions. No, okay, I want to have with Space Reagan. I want to hear this. No, no, no. Um, so, but I wanted to, to touch on what you just said a couple of things, um, specifically thematic ties to other Coen Brothers works. And then you started to talk about we're just post-Vietnam now. The, the boys are coming home from Nam now. Yeah. And there's this wonderful scene in the second episode between uh, Lou and uh, – Ted Danson's and, character. And Ted Danson's uh, – and they're sitting on a porch and they're talking. And Ted Danson is saying how after World War II, we came home and locally we got through the 50s essentially without yeah. murders happening locally. And then he we also went- said it was like the best. There was no murders for six years. Yep. So it felt like it, you got the sense that it actually helped everyone back home yes. to come back. It kind of cleansed the the evil out of people. Absolutely. And then he comments on, and it's important to note that Lou, the Patrick Wilson character, just himself recently came back from Vietnam. And Ted Danson says to him, you know, you guys you come back from this war and now – we're starting to see more of this, these people committing violent crimes against each other again, and it's like you boys brought the war home with you. Right. And that was fascinating to me for a couple of reasons, but the the biggest one and what stuck in my mind, it popped out to me almost immediately, is that what he's describing is, uh, is, is he's seeing all this violence and he's not really sure how to respond to it, and it feels like the world, this good, decent world that he – conceptualized or at least is more able to see than the people around him or many of the people around him is eroding away from from under him and i immediately flashed to tommy lee jones in no country for old men who's having almost the exact same 
existential crisis about looking at how the world is changing and seeing all of the ways in which it seems to be changing for the worse. And you can't always explain it. You can't rationalize it. You don't always know what to do about it. Yeah. And it's literally, I was almost waiting for Ted Danson to say, you know, this country, it's not for old men anymore. <laughs> yeah. I just would have been like, I would stood up at home and just clapped and been like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> there it is. We get it. We get it. But I'm like, immediately, it's this exact same uh, thematic existential quandary that Tommy Lee Jones had in that movie. And I thought that that was an interesting parallel. I'm just waiting for someone to say, you know, for kids at some point. <laughs> be perfect. But uh, I, that's actually important because a big a big sense of this show is is how evil exists in the heart of man, which sounds like we're talking about the shadow. But it's I'm really talking about because it's all about and one thing I'm actually really excited about this this season is I love the first season, but Billy Bob Thornton's character was so evil. Just a pure malevolent force. Yeah, he was, yeah, he was that. And it felt like, it felt odd in the Fargo universe. It felt like everyone had to just like, how are we gonna deal with this, this evil force that's coming in? Well, and you've had, in the movie, certainly, you had some bad guys. Yeah, Peter Stormare was kind of that evil force. And you assume that they answer to other bad guys. Even yeah. though, even though Stormare and Buscemi were, it seemed like they were more or less working freelance, you know at some point in their, their criminal careers, they probably kick up to somebody even nastier. But Lauren Malvo, the Billy Bob Thornton character in season one, is for all intents and purposes, the devil. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And in this, in, so far in this series, it seems like we have people that are all trying to be decent, all trying to be good, and they're dealing with the evil that just this little bit of evil that exists inside of them. Yes. Just these little little tweaks and nods that they have to like deal with, and that's a gr- that's a much more interesting like thematic um, direction to take Absolutely. than like oh I have to deal with this doomsday monster that's that's hitting me. Sure. Well, I, I like what you said, and you attributed it to uh, to Noah Hawley, but the the idea of it's not good versus evil, it's evil versus decency, because right. so often in in our lives, most of us, I mean, did you tell me if your experience differs from mine? Oh, I'm evil. We don't, yeah. okay. Oh, okay. But we don't, you know, most of our struggles are not this, this cataclysmic, you know, uh, God and the devil type showdown to end all showdowns to decide the fate of humanity right. type deal. It's more often the, the issues that we as human beings face day in and day out, even evil is a little melodramatic, but it's just about finding the good parts of ourselves and nurturing those so that the bad parts of ourselves don't start to take those over. Yeah, it's true. And you see that, you see, so and that's my concern, and what we're about to get into predictions, but that's my concern for the Jesse Plemons character, is that he yeah. seems like such a great guy who's going along with it, because that's what I, what he thinks is right, you know, for, to, yeah. for his wife and their prospects and their family. What happens when these dark things, you start feeding them without even realizing it, what happens when they are fed far more than the little good parts and... You know what happens. Yeah, and Jesse Plemons is such good casting for that guy because he's played like, you know, he was in Breaking Bad, he was in Friday Night Lights, and he's played everyone in Friday Night Lights. He was like the epitome of good. He was the moral compass in that show. And then in, in Breaking, Breaking Bad, Bad, he's a total he was, sociopath. Oh, he was such a sociopath. And he has that great, he has a face that you can't quite tell what's going on right. behind him, but in that very like intriguing way. So he's... It, yeah, his development is going to be really great. It's to see how he either falls. They call um, again. Noah has said that the thing with Fargo, it it's it's in the line between tragedy and comedy because when it's a tragedy, it means it's something that has an inevitable end. 
Sure. It's something that you're watching a slow, slow car wreck. You're watching something happen, and you know they can't stop it when there's so many moments where they could have stopped it. Yep. And then they didn't. Yep. Where it becomes comedy is when that's a little unpredictable, and when it's when you can kind of like recognize that that kind of sense of um, I don't know that that fault. Sure. As your own, without really connecting too much to it, you know, sure. it's like, absolutely. It's it's the difference between falling down the stairs and watching someone fall down the stairs. Yes, but it's also if you slow down that fall down the stairs, that's where it's tragedy because you're like, if only he didn't take that step, and that's then he would be fine. And that's what we saw in season one, and yeah. that's what my fear is we're going to see again in season right. two. And on that note, I do want to move into predictions. Okay. Do okay, we, God, this is the one thing I want to bring up about the UFO. Cause so, UFO, yes, tell me about the Space Reagan theory of yours. Well, it's not Space Reagan. It's like you're jumping on Space Reagan. I think it's a little Space Reagan. I think it might have something to do with uh, Star Wars, but the Reagan Star Wars. The Reagan, okay, okay. Okay, so the Reagan had a Star Wars program where he was trying to put up, like, um, things in space, like satellites, to fight the Russians. I think it's a little bit of that, a little bit of experimental aircraft. I would say it's all just in his head, but the thing is, he dies instantly. Yes. So we're never going to know if it's all just in his head, unless they pay it off somewhere down the line. Unless they say something like, oh, he's always had hallucinations. But that would suck. You know, it, you would, it would need to have... I think it needs to have like some reasoning in the world that isn't too far out, that isn't too jump the shark. And I think it might have something to do with conspiracies sure. and the government because they're they're entering this theme of like some someone down the road is like they're pulling strings. People are pulling strings yes. and everyone's behind it. So I'm thinking that we're going to meet Reagan at some point because it's – the, t- the things that are happening in Fargo, I think, are somehow going to be connected to Washington. Okay. And I think maybe Kansas City Mafia might also be part of that, too, because we don't really know who they are except they're from Kansas City. Right. That's it. And one of them is Ray Romano's brother. Yeah. yeah. And you, but you don't really know. They're all of different ethnicity, ethnicities. And they're all like, so they could actually be part of the government, maybe? It's like, you don't really know. So it's all, I think there's some sort of government conspiracies going to sure. come into this. And maybe the UFO has something to do with that. Sure. So what are your predictions? So, okay, obviously we're seeing we're seeing these two factions, the Gerhard family, and you know that Dodd is not going to let Floyd run things sensibly. You know he's going to let his ego right. take control, and you know that's going to put them into direct, presumably violent conflict with the Kansas City Syndicate. And you know a bunch of people are going to die very violently. That is to be expected. Um, I'm curious to see how far down this rabbit hole of darkness the uh, our, our couple, our uh, uh, Kirsten Dunst and Jesse mm. Plemons couple go in an attempt just in an attempt to appear decent. And that's the other thing. Decency isn't decency if all you're concerned about is the appearance of decency. Right. Um, there's there's that where the spaceship is concerned. I would be surprised, honestly, if we saw more. I would say maybe I think it's possible some other character on the other side of the light, dark spectrum. Maybe someone like a Lou Salverson towards the end of the season might have a sighting like that. But I don't think they're going to pay it off with anything substantial. I think it's going to end up being more of like a a serious man embrace the mystery type deal. Yeah, that might be true. That's probably very true. Now, that said, there is a scene in uh, episode two. And it's a scene where the Ted Danson character 
is he's essentially a one man roadblock and Mike Milligan and the Kitchen Brothers show up in their car and he brings them out of the car. He questions them and he ends up saying, you know, you you guys go along, but I'm going to Radiohead to make sure that you guys leave the state. If you don't leave the state, we're going to be talking again. Right. Two things uh, that I want to bring up in relation to that scene. A, Mike Milligan is is that so far of all of the characters, he's the closest one that I've seen to being a malevolent force of some kind. He's dark, he's cryptic, and he's he's basically making these these threats that are just veiled enough that they don't play as threats. Right. And that was the scene where I went, oh, I think something bad's going to happen to Ted Danson. Yeah. Um, but also, if they do decide towards the end of the season to tell us, oh, yeah, Mike Milligan and the Kitchen Brothers are totally from space, I'm going to go, oh, well, yeah, all right, that makes enough sense. You saw them. You saw the way the, the way the Kitchen Brothers move totally in unison and silently. It's terrifying. If you tell me they're extraterrestrials, yeah. I'll go. Well, yeah, Fargo. I'll, I'll buy that. Yeah, we'll see. We will see. But that is going to do it for this first wrap up of uh, Fargo season two, episodes one and two. Uh, Dave, where can people find you on the internet? At, at Mr. Dave Child at the Twitter and the Instagram. All right, I am on all of the inter thingies. As I mentioned, my handle is at the Lex Michael. Go check us out on YouTube. Subscribe. Like us on iTunes. Let everybody know how wonderful you think that we are. And we will see you next week to talk about Fargo some more. Yes. Thank you for tuning in. See you next time. Bye. From executive producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire AfterBuzz TV staff, we would like to thank you for listening to the AfterBuzz TV network. To watch or listen to other After shows and post comments or questions, be sure to visit AfterBuzzTV.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of AfterBuzz TV. Buzz. Buzz later. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals.